just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is Peter Pomerantsev, who a couple of years ago published a terrifying indictment of Putin's Russia and its kind of information war called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. And he's followed that up with a new book called This is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. Peter, welcome. Can you tell me, so, you know, you're in the territory of information, disinformation, misinformation, propaganda. What made you want to, I mean, how does this relate to your first book? What, what, how does it take the story on? So, yes, yeah, so, so my first book, it's a book about Russia and sort of a memoir of my nine years there working in the Russian media system, which gave me kind of some insights into what I saw as a new form of Russian propaganda. And it was new in the sense that obviously propaganda isn't new and Russian propaganda certainly isn't new. But it was very different to the Soviet one. It didn't try to sort of insist there was some higher communist objective truth out there. Quite the opposite. It kind of said that truth was unknowable, that facts don't even matter. It's a politics of pure performance rather than, you know, any kind of political ideology or sense. There's no idea of the future. They're just these weird, misty nostalgias. Um, and instead of having one kind of political program, quite the opposite of this very skillful targeting of different types of audiences, crawling inside their language just to make them kind of addicted to Putinism in various ways. It wasn't kind of a less of an oppressive kind of propaganda, much more kind of creeping inside and playing people from inside sort of approach. And and also political language had kind of lost its meaning there. So so there was a communist party in Russia, but it was they weren't really communists. They were kind of orthodox nationalists. There was a liberal democrat party, and, and that was neither liberal nor democratic. So political language and categories had lost their meaning. It was like living on these sort of, I don't know, dismembered words just drifting around you. And also the sense that democracy was rigged, it was a model, was corrupt. Corrupt inside of Russia, they didn't deny elections were rigged inside of Russia, but kind of rigged everywhere, everywhere was corrupt. And, um, you know, at the end of my book, I go back to Britain and say, and, and America, where I do a lot of work. And then sort of the book ends with kind of like me going, well, you know, crazy Russia, huh? I can't live in, the, in, this, in this world where nothing is true and everything is possible. That was the name of the book. The West has many faults, but at least like, you know, you know, in our world, truth can, you know, you can challenge power with the truth and facts matter and politicians are engaged in a rational discourse that you can argue against. And there's some sort of idea of the future and politics, you know, has clear political categories and, and, and values. And then 2016 happens. And so many of the manifestations that I saw in Russia sort of bubble through in Britain, in America, in Europe. And the second book was sort of impelled by this question, like, you know, am I seeing things? Why did the future arrive first in Russia? Is there something systemic going on? And if there's something systemic going on, what, what, what do we do about it? So these days I don't work in media, I kind of look at media. I have a little think tank at the London School of Economics. And, and in the new book where, you know, I'm present as a narrator, I sort of uh, bumble around the world. So I go to South Asia, to China, to Latin America, to the Middle East, countries so polarized there creaking on the edge of war like Ukraine and like the, US, like the US. And I try to understand what's going on and I try to look for underlying patterns and I find them. And you start with Manila. 
oddly enough, why why Manila? Why is that the first place you go in search of, you know, the post-digital, post-truth age? I actually start with my parents because the book's also a family memoir. But you're right. So look, the book is based, kind of the structure of the book, I contrast the Cold War and the models of propaganda and kind of what we thought were the principles of a healthy media from the 20th century. So ideas like pluralism and freedom of expression and objectivity and balance and all these kind of things that were born out of the conflicts of the 20th century. And I contrast them with today. Manila is very important for several reasons. Firstly, we sometimes forget that actually, you know, that whole breakdown of the totalitarian regimes, which we kind of associate with Eastern Europe, actually happened in South Asia and Latin America as well. So in 1988, you have this incredible people-powered revolution against an authoritarian regime, which is basking in the idea that freedom of expression will now be part of Filipino society. So 30 years later, I go there. And the Philippines is very important because it's got the largest use of social media per capita. Why is it so wide? So anthropologists look at kind of various reasons. I mean, it's quite... Look, when you buy your iPhone in the Philippines, it's hardwired to Facebook, yeah? when you buy your mobile device. So Facebook is your internet. You know, they've done sort of some sort of deal there that Facebook is your internet. So it's a, a society that sees itself already through the prism of social media. So there's that. Secondly, it's kind of a horizontal society where state institutions are kind of weak and not, not always trusted. So family networks are super important. A lot of Filipinos abroad. So that kind of social media horizontal communication is super important. Then there's other things that people talk about in South Asia about this. It's not just the Philippines. It's, it's other places. This kind of like obsession with kind of performance and seeing yourself and selfies. You trust somebody if they've sent you their selfie. There's very important eye-to-eye contact. So there's this kind of weird anthropolo- anthropological reasons why social media and the culture of selfies is very important. But, but there's kind of technological reasons as well, you know, quite simple ones. So, yeah, so, so it's a very interesting place to observe new forms of internet-based propaganda. And, and what's so interesting there is that, you know, today the president there, Duterte, he kind of celebrates the old military dictator. Yeah, he's, he's reburied him in a hero's grave. And he too attacks critics and opposition journalists just the way the military dictator did in the 20th century. But if the 20th century version was to constrict the information space, to impose censorship, to not let you know the opposition publish and so on, here it's, it's the opposite. Instead of trying to constrict the space, what Duterte, the current president, does is he floods the information space. Is that once, once totalitarianisms have realised that in the digital age you can't constrict the information space, you've got to find another way of doing exactly. it? Exactly, and that was always the idea, that the more information we had, yeah, the better democracy we'd have. That's one metaphor that I think has really, really broken down, the idea of a marketplace of ideas, that the more information we have, the best one will eventually win out through some sort of rational choice. And that probably kind of worked when there were, you know, we were fighting, you know, information scarcity. But now in this era, era of information abundance, it's not so clear anymore. Actually, there's a very good report from 2010 by Citizen Lab, who are a Canadian internet research centre, looking at the Russian internet of 2010 and saying we're seeing a new form of control of the internet, not based on constriction, on, on kind of top-down oppression, but based on flooding and shaping and sort of creating so much information people can't orientate themselves. So it's a noise-to-signal ratio, essentially. Exactly, exactly. And that's an, and it's, it's very interesting rereading it now. They're basically saying we think the Russian internet of 2010 is the future of the internet. 
This is 2010. This is still like the romantic bit, you know. Um, <laughs> the innocent age. The innocent yeah. age. And it's interesting the Russians were one of the first to kind of get this. But Duterte was very much, you know, is, is, t- is also very much an adopter of this, of this tactic, which kind of makes sense. I think we're now familiar with the idea of troll farms, but it's the response that's so important because opposition politicians and critical journalists, they start, you know, in the Philippines, they're saying, look, this is the Marcos era coming back. This is dictatorship coming back. And the answer from pro-regime figures is, well, Colin, you guys fought for freedom of expression. Here is freedom of expression. These are just concerned citizens. Go and prove that we're behind these bots and trolls. Very, very hard to prove. These are just concerned citizens or concerned businessmen just, you know, exercising their freedom of expression. The Russians say the same thing. You know, when Facebook started taking down the pages of a sister organization to the troll farm, they started going, well, what about our freedom of expression? And, you know, in a way, they're right, because there is nothing in Article 19 of the Declaration of Human Rights, which protects freedom of expression, saying that lying is illegal. You know, as long as it's not like incitement to violence, you know, it's very, very hard to do anything about it. Because what are these trolls saying in the Philippines? They're saying, you're fake news, we don't believe you, you know, you just don't like our president. But they're doing it in such volume, you know, and it was such targeting. And was such targeting that, uh, you know, it alienates the opposition journalists in the Philippines or in Russia from the rest of the population. You know, and once that's done, then you get sort of judicial messages coming in, sort of, you know, tax returns that were you know, filled in badly by an opposition media suddenly becomes a really big deal. But the information bit is sort of softens them up and makes the judicial stuff, which is quite absurd, acceptable and possible. So it's really hard to respond. And do you see that the sort of... I don't know, do you call it cooperative framing of, of things like free speech? Is there an analogue to, you know, because we, we, not in context of troll farms and so on, but the, a, a big point in the current culture wars in the West are exactly to do with free speech. You know, you've got, you know, snowflake liberals trying to censor us all versus, you know, I've got free speech. If I want to call somebody the N-word, that's protected speech and so on i mean what are we seeing a kind of diluted version of that or a cousin of it what, what's this so it goes even deeper than that it's sort of the language and the narratives and and also the philosophical frameworks of liberal democracy have been co-opted very skillfully by groups who do not believe in liberal democracy you know who have very non-democratic aims so one of the interesting interviews I do in the book is with Martin Zellner, the head of the Identitarian Movement, which is a, essentially he's a Nazi, but you'd never catch him using Nazi language. Quite the opposite. Yes, he, uses the language, he uses the language of, of, of democracy. I was going to say, is there, yeah. was there a bit of a sort of wanting to wear rubber gloves with some of these interviewees in this book? It's very hard interviewing propagandists because they're using you. And you know that they're using you. You know that they've agreed to give an interview because they want to do something themselves. So it's a game. And you constantly have to put it in context. And you constantly have to frame it. And in the book, I just talk about it openly. I'm like, as I interview him, I'm like, am I doing him a favor? So I think, I think the best you can do... Thing, yeah. the, 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 you also interview a guy who runs... It was a sort of goodie in your terms. He's running classes on how to resist totalitarianism and how to fight back. And your propagandist is not only friends with him, he's kind of, not, sorry, friends with him, aware of him. He's kind of a fan. He's like, oh, send my regards to this guy. You know him. So, you know? so, so the far right basically use now the language of kind of like um, non-violent democratic protest movements. So I don't know if you saw the El Paso Shooters Manifesto. So this horrific shooting in the US recently by this right-wing, this right-wing guy. He uses the language of kind of 
you know, 1960s liberal culture. He says, I want to stop intermarriage in order to protect diversity. Because by through intermarriage, you know, we're all becoming one race, and that's bad. So Zellner, the, this Austrian identitarian, will say that in order to protect women's rights, we need to get rid of all the Muslims. So it's like, you know, completely illiberal aims, completely non-democratic aims in the sense of they want to take away people's rights, but using the language of rights. And we see that, you know, we see that. And is this, is this different from what, you know, somebody might say, look, there have always been competing rights and positive liberties and negative liberties. And, you know, I mean, is, is this something different than the... They're very consciously hacking into the language of they're cynically doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're very they're doing it very purposefully. Instead of opposing it with a different philosophy, they're saying, no, no, no this is your philosophy, actually. It's much, and in that sense, I mean, a lot of the book is about how the language of liberal democracy that we kind of inherited from victory in the Cold War has been eaten away because of our own, the, because of the blunders of liberal Democrats who kind of cheapen that language in many ways, because of these cleverer kind of, you know, they're old school authoritarians, really. These are the same people that we saw in the 20th century, but they've put, they've completely remade their language. Uh, and also, you know, countries like Russia, especially, have been very, very good at breaking down the overall storytelling of kind of liberal internationalism, that democracy is an inevitability, that we're all moving towards, that liberty is somewhere we're all going to, that people-powered protests and overthrowing authoritarians leads so to prosperity. teleology is... Well, I mean, we can get more into Fukuyama because I engage with that quite a lot through some Russian Russians that I talk to. But if you think about what the Russian meta narrative is, really one, it's basically saying pro democracy movements lead to chaos and disaster. I mean, the whole operation in Ukraine is a narrative operation in a way. So, you know, you had that revolution. Well, it's led to bloodshed and war and poverty. Yeah. That's what they have to break. They're kind of trying to undo the myth of 1989. If 1989 is our great liberal foundation myth, people out on the streets storming the, the buildings of the secret services, which was very traumatic for Putin. He talks about this a lot, how he saw Dresden being stormed by East Germans uh, and saw the Stasi being stormed by East Germans. They kind of want to undo that. So if you, go, if you look at their propaganda, the one thing they repeat over and over and over, they'll do, you know, they mangle things. They'll have like people out on the streets in, in Syria and, and Ukraine uh, and say, aha, look, it leads to war. And the next you know, the next cut is war and destruction. So that's what they're trying to break down. And, and they've won. So if you think about it, we have all these protests at the moment in Hong Kong, in Moscow, in Belgrade, in Tbilisi. And there's no sense that these protests are part of a, some sort of story about, you know, the inevitable victory of liberal democracy. There's no sense of an arc of history. There's not even a sense that they're one thing. Think back to the color revolutions of the Arab Spring or, again, 1989, you always had you had the sense that this was something part of something much bigger. The end of history thing I, I engage with in a slightly different way because there's a and when I come back to this idea of like you know why did these things happen first in Russia, I talk to a Russian propagandist slash philosopher slash provocateur, and he says it's not all in the book because we also talked a lot outside the book, but we sort of he sort of says that you know they considered the end of history to be the right theory in the start of the nineties, but it it would have negative ramifications. Because as long as there's an idea of history and progress and debate, as long as you can still engage the Soviets with an idea about the ideal society, you at least have the framework for normative, an international normative system of human rights and peace and all these things. And when there's no sense of development in the future anymore, then actually the normative system starts to disintegrate. You know? 
And he talks, you know, he basically, in the early 1990s, one of his colleagues already warned that the future would be full of sovereign murderers. So people in the yeah, absence so of the, yeah. resonant phrases in the book, and that was one I wrote down. <laughs> yeah, so in the absence of international normative norms, in the absence of a competition around the future, you'll just get sort of ISIS or Assad or whatever's happening, DNR, you'll just, these kind of black holes where there are no norms and where people just like invent their own rules for And is what the is idea normal. That, that the international norms that we've kind of, in the 20th century at least, the West was attempting to impose are a form of, you know, imperialism. No, they're not. They're, they're, they're coming. They're, they're not coming. They're not doing that neo-colonial thing. They're not doing. That's not their critique. Their critique is that basically from the Enlightenment onwards, there's competition. It's the, it's much more the Fukuyama argument. There's competition between different ideals, all based in the rational Enlightenment theory of progress, whether it's communism or democratic capitalism. Democratic capitalism wins, but then its sense of the future and its sense of purpose sort of falls apart with the financial crash, with many, many, many reasons. There's not one reason. And then we're left in this kind of wasteland where there are no universal ideas of the future anymore. And when they disappear, then we have the crumbling of a sense there are international norms. And I think they're right. I think they're completely right. So weirdly, the paradox is because Russia lost the Cold War and because its experiment with democratic capitalism collapsed in 1993, essentially, they got used to this new world much earlier. Yeah, and they began to operate both in the propaganda and the kind of the post-normative space a little bit earlier. And they have a slight head start in understanding how to play this new game. Yeah. So, by, but, you know, that's often like that. The losers get it better than the winners because the losers adapt to the new world. And we haven't quite learned to adapt to it. Actually, I don't want us to adapt to it because, you know, I'm a, I'm a complete nostalgist. I want the old international <laughs> normative thing to return. Yes, yeah, so you use the phrase, well, some, one of your interviewees talks about the big symptom. Which is sort of cabalistic idea. Can you explain what the symptom is? is sure. I mean, it's not one of my interviews. It's, it's actually... Um, so I look at a lot at the fall of the Soviet Union and 1990s Russia. As I say, so many of the phenomena that we see here, what we call post-truth politics, was already happening in Russia in the, in, in the mid-1990s. And had been kind of solidified into a model by the early 2000s. And... As quite often in these things, it's the artists who kind of got this first. It sort of is, okay, we live in a world now where all the old languages disappeared, all the old narratives don't make sense anymore. And and we live in this sort of weird flux. And Boris Groys, who's a wonderful historian of Moscow conceptualist art, talks about this process in capitalistic terms. Uh, the symptom is this moment when God retreats from the world and all meaning is lost and everything kind of collapses, which is also a creative moment because that's when new worlds can appear. I wouldn't get too far into it, but it was a nice, you know, it was, it was a nice, playful way to, to look at what's going on. And, and I do think it's very interesting to approach it through art, actually, because artists do tend to grasp these things earlier. And for myself, I, I gained huge inspiration from the Moscow conceptualists of the 70s, 80s and 90s. I think we can learn a lot from them in thinking, in their attempts to describe reality. We can learn a lot about how we can try to describe reality in our in our sort of narrative non-fiction attempts yeah we're talking about the sort of post-truth world you've got some very interesting stuff in here on the, about the granular level of which i'd just like to get, get a sort of insight into of how these troll farms and these bots work because we, we're all familiar with the idea of bots but there's also cyborgs you explain. i mean can you talk a bit about how, how these these operations work and about the unfortunately named for us, IRA. 
It is. It is also interesting that it's we call it a troll farm, which I think is some sort of animal farm association. While Russians call it fabrika, factory, because obviously it's like you know it's a, everything has to be put into into um, factory language. Look, the technology is constantly developing. You know, so we're always slightly always describing yesterday's tricks. But um, one way of talk, talking about it: so bots are purely automated accounts. So you, you, it's a computer basically. You design a program, and they're there spewing out either the same thing over and over, or if they're better designed, then they will react to, if somebody posts something at them, they'll say something. Um, then you have trolls, which is usually a person dressed up as someone else. So it's Ivan in St. Petersburg pretending to be a Trump supporter in Tennessee. Cyborgs are between the two. So cyborgs is something that works automatically, but when it sees some someone's engaged with it, then a real person will step in. And virtually all operations nowadays are cyborgs. Because that's the most efficient way. You want to mix, really. So you're kind of uh, obviously in front of a computer. Yeah, you, you the see, bot, the bot will be pumping out. You know, you launch a thousand from, bots. Yeah. You see one of them. You know, remember this classic stuff in the you know the Russian troll farm operations in the U.S. I mean, wasn't Trump talking to one of these guys at one point? Or, <laughs> so, or I think I think Ted Cruz. I mean, senior politicians were engaging with essentially like you know someone sitting in St. Petersburg. So you want someone. To, you know, you want engagement. That's the you want to be as organic as possible. So once you put a thousand out there, you know, one one gets some engagement somewhere, and then then a real person jumps in. And they take a long. I mean, again, one of the things that's sort of quite surprising to the casual reader of the book is that the business of embedding these bots in the conversation. You know, having kind of sock puppets and bots and you know provocateurs in various electronic and human forms in, if you like, kind of protest movements in conversations about politics goes back, you know, several years. I mean, they, you know, they just sort of sit there, you know, like sleepers almost. So, so yeah, so look, the danger with all these sort of online operations is that you create an army of bots who just talk to themselves and they're in their own little thing. The skill and the more expensive ones on the market because there's a market in this stuff, you know, are the ones that are embedded. So a good operation will embed itself everywhere, you know, and really manipulate the conversation from inside. You know, we t- I talked to a bot herder just in my research at the LSE. I don't think he's in the book, but he was like very proud. He's like, oh, no, no, we have top quality bots. You know, these guys have been like well embedded in the German discourse for many years. You know, this, is, this isn't some of your kind of like cheap Brexit bots. No, this is the real thing. Like drug dealers. Yeah, I guess so. Even less trustworthy. But, uh, I talked to, and we're all kind of very interested, when, when did the Russian stuff start? When did they start building up their, their kind of armies? And I talked to a guy who has a huge data set because he's been researching protest movements across the world. So he was already looking at Occupy and stuff in Venezuela and Brazil from, I think, 2009, 2010. We have to check it. It's in the book. So when we found out which accounts the Russians had been using, because Twitter released that at one point after 16, he went back, okay, when, so when, did these, when were these accounts set up? And they went way back to 2009, 2010, I think. So way before, like, all the stuff. But they only really become active during the Arab Spring and then during Ukraine. Now, there could be two things going on there. It could be that's when they started creating them and and seeing how can they embed them and playing with them. Or it could be that they purchased them. Yeah, we don't exactly know. So it could be that, you know, these are bots that existed and the Russians went and bought them en masse on the market because they were well embedded. Because they only started becoming super active, Arab Spring and then Ukraine, so 12, 14. But, but they're clearly thinking about this. Look, I think as soon as things like Occupy, as soon as the Green Revolution in Iran happens, yeah, you know, all the authoritarians are like, what the hell is this? How do we, how do we stop this technology or how do we use this technology? So, so you know, the, 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 they wouldn't have been sleeping. Yeah. 
Um, what are the motivations of the people? I mean, as you've said, you know, there are old school authoritarians right at the top who are, you know, who have a specific agenda. But one of the sort of striking things, you interview the woman who in, infiltrated the St. Petersburg mm. troll farm. And one of the strange things is that, you know, the people who were working there, she says, you know, didn't seem to be struck by conscience. They didn't think, you know, you know, is this dodgy? Is it, you know? And a lot of the foot soldiers also seem to be just you know, doing it for fun. So that's one of the things that, that I'm interested in throughout the book. I mean, how do propagandists and people who are doing outright manipulation make sense of it? How do they see themselves? What's their attitude to it? So this was very interesting because this was actually about the employees, people in the middle and the bottom. So basically students, often students from out of town who need a bit of money. I mean, there's lots of funny things. I mean, there's often students with bad Russian because they came from like, you know, they either came from Central Asia or, or, or from like not very good educational backgrounds. And so they had like grammar lessons from like teachers from St. Petersburg University saying, no, 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 this is how you write good Russian. This is the internal operations. We've got to understand the Russian troll farm is much more focused on Russian language stuff than the more exotic foreign language stuff, which it does in Germany and, and America. Yes, and she was fascinated by this because she was a journalist. She'd infiltrated it. The people she met were normal people. There were a few sadists. There were a few kind of people who liked it, but they were quite rare. So, look, one thing is disassociation. This is a job. I come there. I work nine to five. I clock off. I leave. Completely split. Kind of it's that double thing that Orwell writes about so well. So people could be writing nasty things about the West, that CIA is everywhere, while looking for their holidays, you know, on another screen looking for their holidays in America. So complete dissociation. A lot of the use of the passive tense. Not I did this, but some information was posted. Hardly, never talk about themselves as trolls. It's quite similar. I did some work with some documentaries about prostitution, and it was very rare for the girls to talk about it in the active sense. And very few could say, I'm a prostitute. I mean, that's quite hard. So something like that, you know, the passive tense, this dissociation with yourself. I also talk to, I also feature the work, fantastic work, of a, of a Filipino researcher who did a huge sort of project about propaganda in the Philippines. And he was trying to understand the people slightly higher up, you know, people who run PR companies that do these sorts of campaigns in the Philippines. And he said something that they gamify the whole thing a lot. It becomes a game. You know, it's not, there's no moral consequences. It's just like, you know, this is our side, this is their side. But also very strong narratives of self-empowerment. So often these are people who come from, have made it in society through their, you know, through managing troll farms and through managing dark PR companies. And and the only thing they talk about is their own success. And the fact that they've come from the sticks and made it in the big city, that's the narrative. And what they did is almost secondary. Also, it's always somebody else's fault. We took orders. The politicians wanted this. What do we do? You know, they're the responsibles. We just we just execute. You know, it's not actually our moral responsibility. So all those things, it's it's quite rare for people to to sort of revel in the sadism. Quite the opposite. It's, it's I suppose the banality of evil. It's it's that kind of stuff. But also normalized in society because when Ludmilla this amazing journalist who did this research she kind of publishes her research and think there'll, there'll be this huge outcry and people are like yeah who cares it's normal you know it's just propaganda and she's like don't understand this is completely driving our country insane and you know it's just even society accepts it yeah so the people who are on the other side because you have kind of people who are fighting back against this you sometimes call them sort of rooted cosmopolitans can you talk a bit about what they are doing and can do. I mean, there's some fascinating stuff about the way you track, for instance, the way a protest takes off through social media. Yeah, I mean, so the rooted cosmopolitans came earlier because when this technology first appeared, of course, it was first 
meant to be harnessed by democratic forces. I mean, just from a simple media theory, authoritarians control the information space. So therefore, if the information space becomes liberated through social media, it'll be good for democracy. I mean, that was kind of the very simplistic theory we had. So the root of cause is, is kind of a little bit earlier. This is more the protests, the Arab Spring, Gezi Park, Occupy. And you had this phenomenon, really, maybe for the first time, of people in different countries getting together to do online campaigns together. So you had people sitting in Glasgow, you know, pushing pro-democracy hashtags in Istanbul. Or much more accurately, sort of guiding protesters through the streets, through like using like Google Earth, I guess, whatever. And I'd say, no, go this way, because we know the police are here, and run this way. And it's coming together of lowest common denominator values. So not seeing your protest in, you know, Glasgow or Turkey or something disparate, but finding those common, those common themes which bring people together. Uh, which is something that's completely broken apart. So I suppose, you know, the, the, those sort of internet-powered protests were seen by political scientists as part of the waves of democratization, sort of, you know, what we talked about earlier, the sense of, like, more and more democracy now kind of in its online iteration, you know, flowing towards perpetual peace and democracy everywhere. So, so that's kind of the early romantic part. And very quickly, governments realize they, can, they need to intervene. They need to do something about this. And actually, I look at the case of Mexico, Mexico, like the Philippines, is one of these very interesting countries because it's it's a rough and tumble, corrupt democracy, but it's got genuine competition and pluralism. And um, it's very technologically avant-garde. Again, Mexico is very, very much at the forefront of, of internet technologies, partly because it's so near the US. You know what I mean? so it's like US with no regulation. The US doesn't have any regulation <laughs> around its internet. And here it's like even less regulation. But they get all the technologies very, very quickly. So I, you know, I follow these, this sort of Mexican protest leader who, who sees his kind of dreams of you know, helping to uh, propel protest movements in Mexico and across the world, kind of infiltrated by the state through bots, through trolls, and the state gets more and more sophisticated. But he sees it in this kind of very, you know, it's not just tactics that we're talking about here. It's not just organizing and motivating and all this kind of stuff. It's much deeper than that. He thinks that the internet and data is a way for society to understand itself and kind of understand its own desires for social change that it might not even have recognized. So, for example, the way that Google famously managed to catch a flu epidemic before it broke out by seeing what people were looking for online and seeing that the what people were were looking for online showed that there was a an epidemic brewing in a certain part of, of the country. Through the search terms and Yeah, through search terms, through yeah, exactly, exactly. So you can see, okay, too many people are asking things about, you know, flu symptoms in a too concentrated way. And that helped the World Health Organization, I think, step in and nip a flu epidemic in the bud. So this Mexican guy, uh, Alberto, his idea is that we can see the demands for social change bubble up. So through search terms, through geography, you can understand what people really want before they've really articulated it. And that lets you tap into the deepest sort of desires of a society for change. And the problem with all these bots and trolls, all this artificial inorganic content that regimes put out there is it kind of divides us from our true and revolutionary subconscious or something and that's the great danger he says that we are losing our contact with ourselves but there's this thing that uh, he's able to produce visualizations which i find kind of fascinating of you know while a protest is happening you can see a kind of cluster of keywords you know sort of almost a ball of connections between various accounts and then the trolls coming in the bots coming in the side and sort of nipping away by yeah, I find him very interesting because he's, he's, he's a protest leader, but he doesn't really talk in the language of the left or of human rights. He talks about the language of networks. So for him, like when he's, he can see how it's protesters building online 
And it's always about what, what IT people call capillarity. So lots and lots of contacts. So people talking to each other very, very, very intensely. And when the government wants to break up a protest, it sends in bots and trolls to distract it. And you can see the ball breaking up as people stupidly start to respond to the bots and trolls, which is what we all do. But that was the point of the bots and the trolls, to distract us. And so parenthetically, don't feed the trolls is good advice, is it? It's, it's completely the... I mean, it's not so much don't feed the trolls, just focus on your capillarity, focus on your network. So he's looking at protest movements, not in terms of left or right, democracy, non-democracy, but in terms of network theory. So good is lots and lots of little networks. Bad is kind of like dismemberment. And he actually calls that fear and love. It's Mexico. People talk in kind of like these kind of like <laughs> the divine terms about data. It feels completely normal in Mexico. It feels a bit strange in, in central London where we don't do God. But they're kind of using the language of metaphysics to talk about data is fine. And, 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 and so his aim as a protest leader was actually to create, you know, to, to strengthen the capillarity. So the way he does it, and it's hard for me to check to what extent it really works, but it's interesting, is by kind of, he knows what are the keywords that drive the capillarity. So it's, you know, it might be corruption or whatever, the things that people really care about. And so he kind of creates content that is constantly repeating those words, almost like a spell to get people talking about that again, because that's what brings them together. I mean, like, it's, I, I'd, I'd like to test this empirically a few more times, and he showed me one example. But I like the idea, and I, I think he's completely right in seeing protests today about, not about ideology, because the leaders don't really have an ideology. So we talked just now about how the protests in Hong Kong and Belize and Moscow feel very different. And they have different demands. And of course, the regimes have changed. Authoritarian regimes don't have one ideology anymore that you can oppose with your ideology. They're not like killing rights for you to sort of battle for rights. And they're not left wing, so you can be right wing or something. They're constantly changing their ideology. But what they do all have in common is divide and conquer and breaking apart any kind of agency and self-organization. So whether it's the Chinese, the Russians, you know, or Vucic in Serbia. So actually, the, maybe the one thing that all these protest movements have is this technological search for closer and denser networks and the state trying to break them apart. So, so maybe Alberto's onto something. Maybe that kind of network theory is the essence of protest now. Identity masquerading as ideology. So yes, one of my characters says that, who's a, who's a former Islamist, who sees the way that Islamist propagandists work reflected in what we call populism today. So I'm concerned in the book, not with populism as an ideology, but populism as a, as a strategy. So populism is the creation of a notion of the people for an electoral aim, and which is necessitated by the fact that we actually are all notions of identity have gone so if before you would target people according to their class or in the Blair years according to their you know economic interests or Worcester woman and Honda civic man and all that kind of stuff so you talk to sort of propagandists and sociologists say none of those categories work anymore you know they don't they don't really pinpoint very much so what you do you have to find little causes online you find someone who's into animal rights and somebody who's into left-handed stuff and somebody who's into you know, the rights of left-handed people and somebody who's into potholes and all these micro micro things extreme fracturing of causes which is a sign of us breaking down as a coherent society you know completely everyone's in their own little filter bubble and then to bundle them together but just as long as you yeah you bundle them together like- under a notion of the people which is very 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 vague so and with a feeling that satisfies all of them, but means nothing. 
in Russia, it was bring Russia off its knees. Yeah, so this is yeah. a sort of genius guy who, again, mm. not very widely known in the West, Pazlovsky. Yeah, yeah. Who, he's well known in Russia, but yes, he's not that well known here. But, you know, who, who first managed to get Yeltsin in, in power and then used exactly the same technique to get Putin in power. If, yeah, if he's a spin doctor and yeah. he's exactly so. This comes back to the sort of early sort of fact that these things happen in Russia first. So, so in the 1990s, Russian propagandists are dealing with this idea there's no more ideologies that anybody believes in. Society is fragmented. None of the old sociological categories from the Soviet Union really make sense anymore. Like collective farm worker and intelligentsia. I mean, like, what does that mean in the 1990s? But they have to win elections. So they can't, they can't win an ideology. They can't win an aversion of the future because the future is just a disaster. And so they have to do it around an emotion. And so it has to be a very vague emotion that connects completely different grievances and can connect them just for one moment. So the emotion in 1999 for, for, the, for the Putin campaign is... I was about to say make Russia great again. It wasn't. It was the left behind. So his idea was I'm going to take everyone who feels in any way left behind by the 1990s. Ideologically, these are opposed groups like pensioners and small business people, you know, uh, so, you know, secret service guys and animators. Target them very, very individually with very specific messages that mean something to them and bundle them all together around an emotion. The sense of this was their last chance to stop being the left behind. And to package it, you need some sort of abstract squidgy thing, like the people or what in Russia was called the Putin majority, the Bolshevstvo, the majority, which was the main idea of Putin, that Putin was the majority. What the majority was, no one really knows. What the idea of the majority was, no one really knows. There's a great Putin slogan at one point, Russia's future is Putin's plan. And what is Putin's plan? Well, that's Russia's future. I mean, completely empty language, but bundled up in very strong feelings which constantly has to be reinvented and reinvented. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Brex, I mean, and not because kind of Russian propagandists taught Tom Borok or Dominic Cummings anything, but simply because Russia got to this place first. And now in the West, we have to negotiate a very similar landscape. And and propagandists come to similar conclusions, which is very... So, 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 so yes, this uh, identity stuff. So a Mexican propagandist put to this way to me, a uh, spin doctor, put to this way is like, because... What he means by identity is not identity politics. That's some weird American thing that is just too specific to America for me to ever try to, to make sense of it. We're talking about something else. He's talking about because political ideology has fallen down, because old categories like working class, you know, class politics doesn't really work anymore. You have to create a notion of the people for every election. So your job is actually to create, you know, a fuzzy identity that people can buy into around the motion so that's what he means he means something quite specific and it was very interesting talking to the political islam guys because that's what they had to, that's how political islam works as well you know you you create this notion of the muslim community the ummah but really by targeting different groups with completely different interests with very very different messages but with one overarching thing that all this can be satisfied if we have an islamic state i mean the isis propaganda is fascinating we just know the scary stuff that was aimed at to intimidate, obviously, you know, the beheadings and all that. And it was aimed at kind of nutcases in Britain and Germany to get them over and fight for them. If you look at the ISIS propaganda inside Syria, it's the absolute opposite. It's like, we are stability. You know, we, we have social services. Assad is killing all the Arabs. Come for our nice, you know, welfare state in ISIS. And we have excellent conditions for motherhood. You know, it's, it was the absolute opposite. But again, with very different ways of saying, this is your community. This is going to be your fuzzy political Islam identity. This idea that, you know, it's about the stories, that narrative, that essentially what, what you're now fighting wars in terms of language and information rather than in terms of stuff and that. I mean, hasn't narrative 
always been a part of politics, mm. hasn't it? You know, from the dam busters to the charge of the light brigade to, you know, the way you've told stories about what actually happened has, you know, entirely shaped their mm. importance. I mean, is what we're seeing now a difference in degree and in speed or a difference mm. in kind? Yeah, nowhere in the book do I say stuff like that. And also, I don't believe, I don't like the Oxford OED definition of post-truth as emotion over reason. Emotion's always been there. What we're talking now is that, like, all propagandists have to play with this emotion because ideologies and rational ideologies have kind of collapsed. So so I, I don't buy a lot of these sort of distinctions that are being put out there. You're not going full Baudrillard? No, I think, I think Baudrillard just anticipated where we live. I think, no, I think a lot of the postmodernists just got this very early and now we live in their world. So, no, Baudrillard's a, I mean, he's utterly nuts, but he's a great read. So, so I don't think, about, if anything, what my book is dealing with is what happens when the big stories that we lived in break down. So the book is called This Is Not Propaganda, which is obviously a reference to Magritte, you know, this famous picture of a pipe and this is not a pipe, which is all about words and images collapsing, uh, or the association between words and meanings, between images and narratives collapsing. So one of the things that I look at, I think one of the great images that really kind of invested had so much of liberal democracy's myth and narrative invested in it which is the image of you know the statue of a dictator being pulled down you know all the lenin and stalin's well, there weren't any stalin ones all the lenin statues coming down in 1989 goodbye lenin is you know that's the iconic shot of it you know that's yeah. there is so much in in the meaning of a shot like that of a video shot like that i mean which summarizes the stories and the myths of, of liberal democracy. And then I contrast that with uh, Saddam's statue being pulled down in Iraq after the invasion of Iraq. And that too, all the journalists started filming, going, wow, it's 1989 again. It was imbued, it was taking the visual language of 1989 and putting it into Iraq. And when that doesn't lead to peace and prosperity, when that leads to kind of civil war and, and disaster, a lot of the storytelling around liberal democracy is really undermined. And the Russians love they jump on that straight away. Like, you know, look where your democracy leads you to destruction. So th- th- that's kind of the, the world that the book, the, the landscape the book is, is tracing. And I'm trying to really make sense. Is there anything in the old stories that still makes sense? Um, is there anything we can still draw from it? Which is why it's a family memoir. So, so the, the whole idea of the family memoir is like me, you know, in conversation with my parents' story. And they were Soviet dissidents. They fought for democracy in very visceral ways. For them, it was obvious what it was about. You know, this was not this was not an intellectual game for them. You know, they were ready to sacrifice themselves for freedom of expression, and and for democracy. And and is there anything we can still learn from that experience? And obviously, because 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 I want to be positive, I, I think there is. Though we have to be honest that a lot of the ideals that came with 1989 have now, well, at least the language that we use for it and the stories we're told around it is dead yeah well your, I mean your father's story Igor Polnavtsev who you know he came to England worked for the BBC mm. and you know the BBC becomes kind of a little thread through the book and this idea of objectivity and that very contested notion I mean how how does he feel and how do you feel about that you know initial idea that because he, he was very angry early on, wasn't he? That, he? that he said, you know, he came to BBC and their notion of balance meant that, you know, you had to give, you sort of had to give Stalin, you know, 50% of the airtime. I mean, he, he was less, I mean, there were others who were more angry. Because my father was always, he's, he's, he's a writer, but a very sort of 
pro-democracy writer, but his interest is in like the artistic side of democracy. So if you think in the Cold War, that was jazz and modernism. And, you know, modernist novels were banned in, in the Soviet Union. You know, like Joyce was a political statement. Yes, and he was beaming yeah. Havel out to Havel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So he's much more on that side. But definitely his colleagues who were more politicized were, 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 were riled by this. And there's a lovely conversation. Because uh, I interviewed a lot of sort of like BBC World Service people from the 70s and 80s in the book. And they're talking about sort of the head of the Russian service and this sort of Russian dissident saying, look, you know, if you had Jesus and Satan on, you'd give each of them 50% of the time. And, and the head of the Russian service was like, yes, but I would let Jesus have the last word, which, which, which of course, some, you know, and, and, it, and that was something. I mean, I think my father just learned that. I mean, he, he, was actually, he actually found that fascinating because it was nice not to be kind of like seething all the time. But definitely, you know, there's a lot of frustration with that. But what's changed now? There's always been accusations of the BBC that it's not objective enough, that it's not balanced enough, that it's too right-wing or too left-wing. But that still includes the idea that balance and objectivity are virtues that we strive towards. What you have now is something much more insidious. So whether it's Dmitry Kisilov, who's Putin's propagandist-in-chief in Russia, or Sean Hannity, who's kind of, you know, Trump's dog, Listen to what they're saying. They're both saying objectivity is impossible. It doesn't exist. So objectivity is a myth imposed upon us is something that Kisilov says. And so all that's left is rampant subjectivity. So Newt Gingrich yes, in America has become, you know, you know, this great, you know, relativist saying, oh, well, there is no such string as objectivity. So you, 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 they use the, the, you say that the, they quote the, you know, second wave feminist slogan that you know objectivity is just male subjectivity well they they, they invoke it yeah, yeah, yeah. They, don't think they quote it exactly but yes they invoke it and they're using the sort of like i mean that's one of the great you know paradoxes that left-wing ideas or, or liberal ideas in america which were all about you know demolishing objective narrative because it was sort of patriarchal or, or, or oppressive have actually become toy things in the in the you know, in the hands of the patriarchal authoritarians. Again, another case of language being co-opted. But it's very, very interesting that, that now both sort of, both extremes sort of say objective. It's not, it's not the BBC isn't objective enough. It's just objectivity doesn't exist. So all that's left is wild subjectivity. And if facts are just another form of interpretation, then what's wrong with lying as well? So kind of they push it to its kind of absurd end. It's just another opinion. You know, that wonderful thing on RT where they'll put on like, you know, a mad conspiracist. Uh, so, well, it's just another opinion. You know, yeah. Just another opinion. Well, is the way, I mean, we haven't, we've, we've probably run over time, so I'll, you know, ask you a big question and ask you to answer it quite quickly. Do you think the way forward, if you like, for the sort of people who would like to see a world in which the truth is important, is it possible to fight back against this post-truth or, you know, narrative strategies of authoritarianism by reasserting the value of truth and facts and whatever it may be, objectivity, or do you simply have to get in the gutter and fight better and dirtier than them in this contested multi-narrative world? So so the book definitely does broach that. And I kind of, and certainly my work in the School of Economics, that's why we created this little think tank called little initiative to, to explore exactly that. So there is a regulatory response. Because the internet is unregulated. We, it's not a regulatory response around censorship. Quite the opposite. We sort of live in a world where we don't understand how the information environments around us is shaped. Whether it's the bots and the troll armies and the cyber militias that you and I talked about. Whether it's the kind of dark ads that we saw in the American and British uh, electoral and referendum campaign. So ads that we don't know who they're by. We don't know why they're targeted at different people. We don't know whether 
you know, one person in one social media group is seeing the same ad as another one. You know, we have absolutely no overall vision of how the information environment around us is shaped. We don't know which of our own data is used to target us. We don't know why algorithms, you know, on Facebook or Google show us one piece of information, not another. So we're, we're like sort of, we're like Taliban on Prospero's Island, so surrounded by this kind of internet that we don't understand why we see what and how we're being shaped. That's that's a form of censorship, I think. So I think we need a radically new regulatory transparency uh, or regulation that, that 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 puts transparency at its at its heart. And so, is that possible? With yeah, of course. We're about, to, we're about to start regulating. Right. It's, it's going to happen. It's just a case of doing it well. Because at the moment, all the regulatory proposals in Britain and Europe are all around censoring. Let's take down disinformation. As I said earlier, disinformation is not a legal category. You know, I would love to... I would love to, there are certain amounts of my friends and my relatives I would love to censor. I would love to call up like Google or Ofcom and say, actually, you know, my uh, in-laws have just posted something which is really inaccurate and really biased. Can you take it down? I mean, it's ridiculous. The idea that you could censor, you know, there's billions and billions and billions of bytes of information online. It's just stupid. But that's the way a lot of regulation is going. It's stupid. It's also unethical. And I think it's probably illegal. You know, there'll be a collision with the... With, with, with human rights legislation. So that's not the way. What we should be able to see, as soon as you go online, you should be able to see if something is organic or something is a campaign or a cyber militia. It's a cyber militia or a campaign, it should be taken down. If it's pretending to be organic, but it's not, it's the behavior that's deceptive, it's not the content. So d- deceptive behavior should be made legal. I'm not talking about anonymity. It's fine to be anonymous. You say, like, I need to be anonymous because of security or I'm a comedy account, that's fine. Yeah, anonymity is great and, and often very necessary. I'm talking about that positive, you know, active deception of a campaign. You know, not one individual saying something on Twitter, unless it's the president, it doesn't matter. It's when it's a campaign that it matters. So we should have oversight of algorithms. You know, there's a lovely line in the white paper to regulate the internet here, kind of a throwaway line, like if the algorithms are producing extreme behavior, or, you know, furthering extremism, they need to be changed. It's like, whoa, <laughs> that's huge. YouTube's model is to further extremism online. So we have to have public oversight uh, and and, pub- and interventions where algorithms are built. But the, mm-hmm. surely there's two objections to that, one of which is that many of these algorithms are proprietary mm-hmm. and are, you know, so trade it's... secrets. And the other one is that, that the enabling of this behavior is surely an unintended consequence or can be mm. a collateral consequence of an algorithm which just serves you more of the stuff you like so we can get into what we mean by you like i think i think there's a strong case to make for public service algorithms in the sense that they give you a diet a balanced diet of stuff that's google news already don't do that youtube doesn't do that because it says it has nothing to do with news so the way, yes there are sensitivities around commercial secrets look in medicine Doctors are allowed to see your medical records. No one else sees them. So we have plenty of models of how to sort of look at stuff and have public oversight of it and not and, 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 and yet keep it secret. It is going to be sensitive, but it's the process that matters. We'll find a way to do this. It's, it's the idea that matters. Look, it's the principle that matters. Look, in America, we have the start of a new presidential campaign and already people around Trump are saying 2020 is rigged because Google pushes up liberal news and pushes down conservative news. Sounds like a conspiracy theory to me. However, I don't know. There's no way for us to check. As long as, like, the mechanisms of our, let's call it a public sphere, though it's a crap metaphor. The metaphor, you know, know, these mechanisms are in the dark. It'll erode trust. So we have to have enough oversight for us to trust each other again and enough transparency for us to have a genuine debate again. 
so that's the way that's the regulatory part in so that doesn't solve the future bit and the facts mattering that just creates us information space where we can have a deliberative democracy in principle because at the moment we don't have one and you talk about the the authoritarian internet and the democratic internet until we get to china it's not that different at the moment no, it's also bots, trolls, you know, gaming the algorithms. It's all kind of the same thing. There's no huge difference between Putin internet circa 2014. Now it has changed. But around then, you know, or the Duterte internet now and the American internet now, I want us to really have, like, develop a, a sort of piece of political storytelling about regulation. I want to say this is the democratic internet, you know. You have rights on it. You have transparency on it. We know how, 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 how it's created and how it's run. And here's the authoritarian internet, which is non-transparent, which where governments do bully sort of local tech companies to push up pro-Kremlin news and push down liberal news. So that's a massive piece of political storytelling that can happen. So the information space is where democracy, as defined in the aftermath of 1989, has been undermined. It's where we can also start to establish what is the difference between democracy and the other things. I mean, they're, they're not all, you know, there's so many other things out there these days. So there's that, but that won't solve the post-fact thing. So in the book, the main kind of argument that I make is that factual discourse in politics is linked to an idea of the future. As long as you have an idea of the future that you're trying to prove, you need evidence to support it. So the Soviets, even when they lied, they tried to make it sound realistic, and they were ashamed when they were caught lying because they were trying to establish their utopia. So the idea, what, what do, you know, Trump, Putin, Bolsonaro, Orban our current prime minister, what they all have in common is they're all nostalgists. There's no idea of the future in their discourse. You know? And you don't really need a factual discourse when you're doing nostalgia. Actually, facts probably be quite unhelpful. So I think facts in the future are deeply, deeply, kind of a rational future needs evidence to prove it. Yeah? So we have to get into the rhythm of generating a conversation, especially in our political coverage, where facts become necessary again. So at the moment, we have a, you know, the, the, we have a US presidential election coming up and I was just watching the democratic debates they're structured like a reality show in the sense that if you attack someone they get 45 seconds to respond if you attack back the other person gets 45 seconds the whole incentive structure is built to kind of slag each other off which is great telly terrible for politics instead let's do something else let's said let's give them a political challenge and, and say okay how are you going to collaborate to solve this in the future force them into collaboration and force them into an evidence-based discourse it's not my idea it's a danish journalist who's an expert on these things came up with that but that's like a tiny example weirdly i think this is in dominic cummings's spectacular ramblings that were published in the spectator he seems to be talking about that he's even saying pin us to evidence make us be evidence-based and, and and force us at the end all you want is these kind of like games between who's going to be the next leader you know we can give you that all you want force us to be evidence-based so it's about generating narratives that's on the level of media that force politicians to stick to the facts and be fact-based we don't have a post-truth discourse when it comes to building a bridge you know as soon as you're building a bridge everything becomes very evidence-based unless you're boris johnson into the garden bridge and there you're off into fantasy again but usually you know any kind of little future project you know we're not post-truth there you know so that's the direction we have to go in I'm not a political philosopher. I don't know about big historical futures. But just on the le level of media, that's something that, that, that we need to, um, that we can do in very, very practical ways. Peter, thank you very much. There is all this and more in great detail in Peter's book, as well as, I should stress, a fascinating travelogue and a very moving family memoir, all for the price of one book. Um, <laughs> Peter Pomeranzo, thanks a lot. <laughs> thank you for listening. 
I want to let you know too about an upcoming event where I'll be talking to Robert Harris about his new novel, The Second Sleep, for a live recording of this podcast. The event takes place on Wednesday, the 23rd of October at the Emmanuel Centre in Westminster. You can get tickets at spectatorcouk forward slash events. I very much hope you'll come and join us. 